This is from Mark chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, Why do you want, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Since Easter, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, um, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of all the Gospels, Mark is the pithiest. It's the shortest. It is the simplest It's based on Peter's recollection of Jesus. And so Peter was an uneducated, illiterate man. It is the simplest language. Peter, a man of action, says, I saw Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then this happened. There's no attempt to interpret. There's no attempt to gloss. It is very matter-of-fact, very visual. He's reporting what he saw. And so it's a great place to go to get the basics of Christianity, the basics of who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus go to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately afterwards, he goes out into the desert and is tempted by the devil. Then he goes up north to the Sea of Galilee in the northern Israel, And there he begins to recruit, of all people, fishermen. We looked at that last week. And now he begins his official public ministry. He begins to teach. He begins to address himself to the broader world. They went to Capricum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. Capernaum is a town on the north end of the Galilee. So this is north Israel. He's picked up his fishermen there. Um, They've left their fishing boats, and he goes to the very north of the Sea of Galilee, and he begins to teach. The Sabbath back then was a Saturday. He goes to the synagogue, which is not as strange as perhaps it might sound. Um, All you required to have a synagogue back then was ten men who wanted to worship, And because education and teaching was so rare, they were very willing to have any traveling rabbi, any traveling teacher to come speak to them and to speak on uh, Scripture, to speak on the Bible. In fact, you can think of Jesus with his 12 disciples. He's sort of a traveling synagogue. He goes around teaching wherever he shows up. But he's a different kind of teacher. The people were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The people were amazed. The word there, uh, the Hebrew word for amazed, has overtones of alarm and fear. 
They were being challenged. They were being overwhelmed, almost awestruck. This isn't just simple charisma. This isn't just good public speaking. When he shows up, he has a power. Authority there, literally in the Hebrew, it means out of the original stuff. He's bringing the right stuff, the original stuff, the source, because he is the source. He is bringing them spiritual authority. He's not just talking about it. He represents it, and he is, they see it as he starts to speak. And it has an immediate impact. Just then, verse 23, a man in that synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Remember, this is the first chapter of Mark. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we have this extraordinary encounter. A possessed man, possessed by an impure spirit. Multiple personalities, what do you want with us? A personal spiritual confrontation. Have you come to destroy us? There's a fight here. And knowledge, seemingly supernatural, of who Jesus really is. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. How should we think about this kind of stuff in the Bible? This is the kind of stuff that turns people off. All the supernatural hocus-pocus. Do we really believe in demon possession in our day and age? Well, the first thing to say is this is a very powerful and prominent and direct element of Mark's gospel. It starts here in the first chapter, but there are four distinct times where Peter at length describes the details of exorcism. One theologian put it this way, contrasting Mark with other ancient literature of the time, stuff outside the Bible. Despite the great amount of material referring to exorcisms and demons in the literature surveyed, he's talking about all all the remaining literature we have from that age, and there's not that much of it. There are very few narratives available. It is mainly in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, that most of the narratives are found. The only exorcistic figure in the extant literature to whom a number of exorcism stories are ascribed and related in detail is the biblical figure of Jesus of Nazareth. So whatever else you think, recognize that this is not some little gloss added to the Gospel of Mark. This is a central prominent element that contrasts Mark's account with other accounts, and particularly accounts outside the Bible. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Peter, the one whose tradition this is based on, wanted this to be front and center. What else can we say? Mark shows us that the the ministry of exorcism was separate from Jesus' healing ministry. In fact, he enlists 72 disciples, specifically 
with the power of exorcism, and he sends them out. Also, this is the source of the confrontation that Jesus has with the leaders of Israel. They first come out to challenge him, not because of what he's teaching, not because of claims about who he is. They first come out because of the exorcisms that he's performing, that everybody's paying attention to. So whatever else you think about the idea of exorcism, just be aware that this is front and center. You have to deal with it if you're going to read Mark. He makes sure that you are going to be confronted with this idea. So how should we think about it? Well, the church is divided on this one. I am divided about how I think about this. When I was a pastor in Manhattan, I was responsible for the prayer ministry, and I actually went to an exorcism in, uh, in New York City. It was a church basement. There were 100-plus people in there. It was a traveling itinerant preacher, um, and uh, he handed out bread. Everybody was given two slices of white bread and a bucket, and he started to prepare all these people to regurgitate their sin to vomit out evil spirits. And as the, the, this process gathered force, and I realized that I was about to witness 100 people throwing up in a church basement, <laughs> I got up and I skedaddled with my tail between my legs. I did not want to be in that room. What should we think about stuff like this? There are extremes. There are things like that that go on in the Christian church. I read an account uh, of a meeting in southern Connecticut where this itinerant preacher goes around doing similar things, and one of the people there stood up, a woman with hypertension, and the, uh, the preacher puts his hand on her and calls out the spirit of salt, banishes the spirit of salt from her so her hypertension will be um, restored, her body will be restored. That's not Christianity. That's pantheism, the idea that every element in the world has its own spirit. But then you have the other extreme. There are, particularly among some mainline churches, there's this idea that you've got to throw out everything that's supernatural. All the miracles, all the supernatural elements of the Bible, we know because we're modern and we're smart that they can have happened, and therefore we just ignore them. Well, I can't do that. You know, I've been, as a preacher studying and praying through this Bible for 20 years now. And it has power. I don't take it lightly. And if the Bible puts this front and center, you can't just ignore it. You can't just deny it without doing great damage to your understanding of the Bible and basically robbing the Bible of its power to challenge you, to correct false thought, to challenge patterns of behavior that are inappropriate. I trust Scripture. And so before going any further, let's stop and just pay attention to what, ha- what Scripture has to say about spirits, about spiritual warfare, about demons, the devil, Satan. So much of what we think we know comes from movies, lurid spectacles, movies like The Exorcist, you know, books that we've read, things that we've heard. But what does the Bible have to say? 
So we're going to spend a moment just looking at that. The Old Testament, beginning Genesis 1, says that God created heaven and earth and that they were good. There was no blemish. There was no evil because God is good and holy and without blemish, and so is his creation. But by Genesis 3, we learn that Satan entered the picture, tempting Eve and seeking to thwart God's plan for humanity. So three chapters in, evil shows up in the form of Satan. And so right there at the beginning, evil begins. What is evil? What, who or what is Satan? Well, the word itself, Satan, Hebrew word, means the adversary. So Satan is a personal being, a personal will with an agenda in opposition and a defiance of God in the world. And if you go through the Old Testament, you see that Satan shows up in the idolatries and false gods that tempt Israel away from the true God. You also see, and this is particularly in uh, the book of Job, that Satan's action in the world is constrained by God. God is fully aware of his presence as he goes to and fro in the world. But he is under the authority of God. He's not some random figure of mischief. He has to show up when God commands him to show up. So it's not like this uncontrolled mischief, this uncontrolled power. And that's basically the idea you get from the Old Testament. New Testament. We learn from Peter's letter. Peter's letter is, you know, Peter is the one whose account we have in the Gospel of Mark. And from Jude's letters, that there was a spiritual rebellion in heaven. The angels rebelled. The chief angel was Satan. And after this rebellion, they were cast out of heaven. Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Luke. The 72 returned with joy. This is the 72 that Jesus sent out to perform exorcisms in Israel. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So there's Jesus saying he saw this casting out. He saw Satan fall. So you have this picture. God creates heaven and earth. He created the angels to do his will in heaven. He created human beings, Adam and Eve, to do his will in the earth, on the earth, his representatives on the earth. Both are created creatures, angels and human beings. What does that mean? It means they are lesser than God. We are finite creatures with limited powers, just as the angels are. We have fallen 
because of the temptation of Adam and Eve, just as the angels have. So you have this picture of the world. It has been broken by rebellion. The angels that rebelled have been cast out. They are what we call demons. And Satan, the adversary, was cast out. And when Satan comes into this fallen world, his name changes in the Bible. He was originally the adversary of God, but when he is cast out, he becomes diabolos, the devil, which means the accuser. He's no longer fighting God. He's now seeking to tempt and accuse those who would follow God. That's what he does in the world. That's the spiritual power of the devil in our world. So you have in the world two sides. You have rebellious human beings and you have rebellious angels. There are still good angels in heaven. Satan, the adversary of God, has become Diabolos, the accuser of God's people after the entrance of sin into the world. And that's where people find themselves until Jesus shows up. Jesus comes from heaven to earth to challenge the power of the devil over God's people. That's why he came. And that's why this is in the first chapter of Mark. Remember, before this meeting in the synagogue, God, uh, Jesus has already met the devil. Immediately after he's baptized, he goes out into the desert and he is tempted by the devil, the accuser. As soon as he's baptized, it's the first thing that happens before anything else. Now, how would you send someone to fight the devil? I mean, if you were going to get ready for that fight, what would you do? You'd probably send your maximum tough guy, all buffed up and well-fed and rested, maybe a little SEAL training, high-caliber weaponry, ready for battle. Well, that's not what happens. Jesus goes out into the desert alone. He doesn't eat or drink for 40 days. He would have been exhausted, probably quite close to death, at his absolute human weakness. And that's where the battle starts. At the extremity of Jesus' human abilities. On the edge of exhaustion and death. And that's where he fights and challenges the devil, the accuser. He uses no special powers. There are no divine interventions. There are no angel armies showing up to fight on his behalf. It's just this exhausted, dying man alone. And what does he do? He uses the word of God as it is written. Nothing else. No other powers. And he defeats the devil. 3-0, no problem. That's how it ends with this exhausted man's victory. Look at this encounter with demons here. Be quiet, Jesus said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. 
The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. No spells, no incantations, no rolling up the sleeves and saying, stand back, watch this. He just speaks a word, and the battle is over. In fact, this is not a battle. This is a house cleaning. This is throwing out the trash. The unclean spirits are gone. Remember what that means to be an unclean spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is that which does God's will. Holy literally means set apart for God's purpose. So a Holy Spirit, a holy person, a holy church, holy scripture, anything that is holy is that which is doing God's purpose, that which is useful to God. What is unholy? What is unclean? What is an unclean spirit? Anything, anybody, any spirit that is in opposition to God's purpose. So you have holy angels who are doing God's purpose faithfully, and you have unclean angels, demons, who are in opposition to God's purpose. Just as you have Satan in opposition, becoming the tempter. And so that's the spiritual reality of our world. That is the battle that is going on. It's a confrontation. But it's a confrontation led by Jesus. He's not an example. He's not there showing us how to fight the devil, although we can learn a lot from him. He is the one that fights and defeats the devil. That's why he came. Faced with his power, demons run. Satan is defeated. And the people there recognize it immediately. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Whatever else you think is going on in the Gospels, it was this aspect of Jesus' ministry that had the power to change people, to claim people, to change their mind and make them want to follow him. If you get rid of this spiritual confrontation, this idea of a spiritual world that is in conflict, you're going to lose the power of the gospel. I don't know where you are spiritually, but if you don't take this kind of thing seriously in the Bible, it could be one of the reasons, perhaps, that your life is not spiritually fruitful, where you don't feel that power, where you don't see a difference because you are a Christian. All right, so how should we think about this? I've told you I'm a little bit, I'm not sure. But I think you have to start with what the Bible says so clearly. One, the adversary is lost. Peter and Jude and John, all their letters refer to the casting out of Satan as judgment. The battle in heaven is over. The result 
is they're cast out. They have no more spiritual power. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, talks about a final judgment. That is so certain it is written down. It's going to happen, and that is the fate of Satan, the devil, demons, everything which is unclean, everything that is unholy. Why? Because Jesus has true spiritual power, absolute power. He just has to speak a word, and demons are defeated and driven away. There's no fight here. There's just a restoration of God's kingdom, a restoration and a redeeming of the world. You know, when I was uh, a new Christian, new pastor, I was uh, a little unsure how to think about exorcisms and spiritual power, and I asked um, my boss, my, one of my first bosses, Dick Kaufman, who'd been a pastor a long time, how to think about it. You know, why are we not seeing ex- exorcisms all the time if this is what's happening? Um, he pointed out that our culture, Western culture, is the product of Christianity. That for centuries in Christian culture, through Europe into America, people have been claiming the promises of God, baptizing themselves with the Holy Spirit, and driving out demons. This has happened again and again and again through the centuries. And so you have a culture which has largely been de-supernaturalized. The power of the devil, he still roams the world, but it has been largely driven out of Western culture, the spiritual power. That is not true in other parts of the world. You know, um, we're Presbyterians, and there's not just Anglo pastors in our presbytery, there are a lot of Brazilian pastors. And they do exorcisms all the time because they have people coming up from Brazil who have been involved in voodoo and satari and all kinds of folk religions mixed up with goodness knows what. And many families have this as a running theme through their families. And so for the Brazilian pastors, this isn't theoretical at all. And if you speak to missionaries who've been to Africa or been to Asia or been to South America, they will all talk about these kinds of confrontations. If this is true, then as the world comes to America, to New York, as different cultures and different peoples come here, you should expect this start of stuff to show up. As Americans, as Westerners, begin to dabble in other spiritualities, other religions, other traditions, mess around with Ouija boards or goodness knows what, we should expect this sort of stuff to start show up in our friends and families. Some of you perhaps have, have experienced it already. The main takeaway, don't be afraid. This battle has already been won. It is written down in the Bible. The book of Revelation tells us exactly what happens. There is nothing to fear. Satan and demons, unclean spirits, are creations. They're not free-existing, self-sustaining beings. They are creations of God. That means they are lesser than God in power. They are finite, unlike him. And that means they can't be everywhere all the time. 
in Job, when, it, when uh, the Bible talks about Satan, Satan is running around trying to do mischief. He is not some kind of omnipresent spirit everywhere all the time in everyone's life. He's finite, and he's been defeated, and he will be driven out by God's word and the power of God's spirit. If you've been baptized, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no room for any other spirit if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been claimed by God. He has claimed you individually in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit. You belong to him. There is no power on earth or in heaven that can ever take you away from him. You are absolutely secure, so you never have to be afraid. This stuff is scary. Just remember who you are. Remember your baptism. Remember the one that you follow. Last thing, all you need is scripture. That's all it took for a starving, exhausted Jesus alone in the desert. He didn't need anything else, and neither do you or I. It is why we should read scripture. It's why we should claim the promises of scripture, so that when we are accused, when we are tempted, when we doubt, when we're feeling unlovable, even by God, we remind ourselves of who we truly are and what God has promised to us. Scripture, we looked at when we looked at spiritual warfare, is the only weapon that we have against the spirits in spiritual warfare. And so be ready to use it. How do you use it? When you're afraid, when you doubt, when you are being challenged, read the promises of Scripture. Memorize them so that you, bring, you can bring them to mind even when you're alone. They are the ultimate guarantee of who you are because it is the truth and authority of Jesus. Remember, John calls him the Word of God. This is the power of God, the Word of God, and this will defeat and drive out any adversary, any tempter, any challenge. I'm going to remind you of two Two parts of Scripture, and uh, we'll end with these. Paul, in his letter to Roman, uh, the Roman church, writes a beautiful chapter, Romans 8. I encourage you to read it and memorize chunks of it, and then I'm going to read uh, Psalm 23. This is Paul. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a lot of good, solid theology in that passage. Now, for some of us, memorizing is hard as we get older. So if you're going to start, start with what the church has always started with, perhaps the most memorized passage in all the scripture, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. As I read this, as I read every verse, is there something in your life that is stealing your joy, filling you with fear, causing you to doubt, challenging your belief? Find a promise in the psalm. Claim it. Remember it. Use it against your doubts, your temptations. This is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray.